let's pray. Lord, speak to us this morning from Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet this ban is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just going to pray now for Travis as he comes up. Um, yeah, Lord, just thank you for your word this morning. Um, thank you, Lord, that it that it is active and alive today. Um, thank you, Lord, for Travis, and pray that you would speak through him by your Holy Spirit. Pray, Lord, that we would be changed by your word, um, that we've become more like Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Duncan. Um, good morning, everyone. Hello. Uh, my name's Travis, as Duncan said. Um, I am uh, an MC leader and an elder here at Village South. Uh, really glad that you are all here today um, to worship with us. We... Uh, if you uh, have been kind of traveling this summer or just this is your first time here, we've been doing a series on the Psalms, um, and it's been really good. Um, I, I, don't, I don't often spend a lot of time in the Psalms. I don't know how often you spend in the Psalms, um, but it's even in kind of preparing this particular sermon, it's been really good for me to kind of get back into it. Um, I personally am the type of person that like, likes to get really cerebral, analytical with the Bible, um, theological, let's wrestle with a big idea. And the Psalms, um, 
is, is a, it's a songbook, it's poetry, it's, it's emotive. Um, so we're not talking, I mean, we are talking about like theological concepts, right? But this isn't Romans. Um, it's not, you know, the, the books people write about the Psalms are different than the books they write about some of like the New Testament letters and stuff. And so um, it's been good for my own heart to get in the Psalms again because I think what the Psalms and really kind of what the series we've been finding is that when you, the, the Psalms is a book that helps us take the experiences we have in our own lives and then, and then, and then put them in light of who God is and, who, and his character, his, his past promises fulfilled, his, his future promises, right? And so, so what you see in the Psalms a lot is you see the psalmist either speaking for himself or speaking for the people of God and saying, like, this is what's happening to us, to me right now. This is what I'm seeing. Um, there's a lot of questions usually about, like, what's going on and why is this happening? And then it's, it's a, you see a lot about the character of God, a lot about God's past faithfulness in there. And so it's really good to be in the Psalms because it helps us take our perspective um, either perspective that we currently have or us trying to wrestle with what perspective should we have on what's happening in my life. And, and, it, and it puts it in light of eternity and in light of the character of God and who he is and in light of the gospel, really. And so the Psalms are really cool because you also are all, all, like often able to see really beautiful pictures of Jesus and all of it, too. And so that's what we've been doing, right, going through the Psalms. Um, and so to kind of start us off, um, I wanted to do a little exercise. By the way, I did this sermon in East um, last week, and so uh, I, I hope it's better now that I've practiced on them um, for us this morning. But uh, but yeah, we we uh, we did this last week, and and I don't know if in your own life you've had um, I don't know like a place you've gone to, a book you've read, a conversation you've had with a friend or a family member that's just kind of been like perspective resetting. It's like I don't know I don't know how to it's, I've really struggled with how to describe the concept, and I can't do it aside from like a paragraph, right? But basically like it's, it's a moment in time where you're like, you become aware of something that's been real, like a reality that's been true the whole time, right? And, and all of a sudden you're like, oh wow, this is crazy. Like for me going to the Cliffs of Moors like that, like I remember, oh, I'm not, a, I'm not very important. And God's, a really, God's made some really cool stuff and I'm pretty small and insignificant in light of things. If I was like down there with the water on the rocks, that the sea would win. You know, like, you just become, like, aware, like, I'm not, this, it just resets perspective for me a lot. So one thing I think, um, and I'm going to kind of take us through this, I don't know if this example is maybe a little old now, um, just because it's, it's been a while, but about a month ago, these images were being passed around on the internet because there's the, the James Webb Space Telescope. Is anyone familiar with this? Any, like, space nerds around there? So they, it, it finally sent back its first images. This, this telescope's replaced the Hubble telescope in terms of bringing back images from, like, deep space. Um, and some of the images were just incredible. Um, and a lot of people that I know were looking at these and being like, oh, wow, like, how big is the universe? And, like, and Christians were like, amazing, like, look how good God is, rightfully so, praise God. But also, like, people who weren't Christians were like, oh, it really makes you contemplate. There's, like, this existential kind of mental discussion people started, like, experiencing just because of these images, right? And so this is one of them. I wanted to show us some this morning because they're pretty cool. This is um, the Southern Ring Nebula. It's viewed from the Southern Hemisphere. It's 2,000 light years away, which if you traveled at the speed of light for 2,000 years, you'd end up here, but you wouldn't because you'd be dead. But if you did and we're still alive, this is what, where you would be. And so this is a dying star from what I was reading. So all these like kind of orange rings are just like, it's just like mass and matter from the star that's kind of just being emanated out. And it's just, it's beautiful, right? It's, it looks like, like a designer for a Marvel movie. Like this is a scene from like a Guardians of the Galaxy 3 or something. 
Um, but it's really fantastic. Um, the next one is really cool because it helps us kind of understand perspective. So this is an image from Earth, right? If you could see this in the night sky. I don't know if you can see the red box there, but it zooms into this image. The next one. Boom. Pretty cool. That box is now up in the right. It zooms into this image, which is really cool again. And then this image right here is what it ends up looking like. So this is the image that the, that the telescope brought back. Fascinating, right? Just brilliant. And so... This one, I think, is around 7,000 light years away, 7,500, I think. Um, this is called the Carina Nebula, and this is actually a forming star. So whereas the other one, the, the gas was like, like going out, now gravity is starting to bring matter and gas together to form a star. I don't know how space works, but that's just what I read. It, either way, it's pretty brilliant, and it's pretty crazy that there's places in the universe that look this beautiful. And then there's this last image is actually probably the least pretty of all of them. But the reason why I put it in here is because it's pretty fascinating. Um, this image, I don't know. They were saying it's some like millions or billions of light years away. I'm not sure how they know that. But what they did say, and this is what was really crazy to me, is if you took like a, like a grain of sand, like a speck of sand, and held it up at an arm's length, you could just like leave it there. So imagine like a little grain of sand right where my finger is. And the entire view field of space, what the, the part of space in the night sky that that grain of sand covers would be this. Crazy, right? And these aren't stars. These are galaxies. Right? So, like, so all these images hit everyone's, like, you know, news, you know, Facebook feed or whatever, and people are now aware of a reality that's been real the whole time that they just weren't paying attention to, and it caused them to kind of have this perspective reset, right? And the reason why I do this little exercise is because that's what this psalm does for us. Um, this psalm, Psalm 90, is if you like read the title of it, it's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Which how cool would it be known like to be known as the man of God, right? Um, but anyway, it's a prayer of Moses, and it's written at the time described to Moses. It's written at the time of Israel's second entry or second like attempt, right, to get into the Promised Land. So it's it's at the end of Moses's life, because um, as we know from Scripture, Moses doesn't actually go into the Promised Land. He dies before they go in. Um, the, the Exodus has happened, the Ten Commandments have happened, the Red Sea has happened, um, Israel's disobedience, the first time they got to the Promised Land has happened, and they've wandered again for 40 years. And so that's the context that this passage is written in, that this psalm was written in. And it's, it's what's called a psalm of lament. L lament, if it's a word you're unfamiliar with, is like an emotional response of sorrow and grief to something. Um, and so there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations that's just like this grieving of things that the, the, the writer of Lamentations does. And, and this psalm is a psalm of lament. And I think it's really, imp I, I, at first when I was studying this, I was like, man, why did I pick this one? This is, a, this, this is like a bummer psalm. It's like, it's not like, praise be to God, how majestic are you? Look at your wonderful works of your hands kind of thing. It's, it's kind of a heavy and sobering and kind of depressing psalm a little bit when you start focusing on certain verses and things that it says. But it's, it's because it's a psalm of lament. And actually, a third of the psalms are psalms of lament. A third of the psalms are a person of God or the people of God grieving something and bringing that grief and sorrow or confusion or whatever to God and being like, what do we do with this? And that's what this psalm does. And so I, I, think, I think it's good that we're in a psalm of lament this morning for a couple reasons. Number one, when was the last time you heard a worship song that was a psalm of lament? right? When was the last time you heard a song, like a, like a, we don't write songs for the church of sorrow and grief. 
but a third of the Psalms are that. And so the only things that we as people in general, but specifically the people of God do, is we grieve like at a funeral and like that's it. And I mean, I've heard even joke that like in Ireland, you don't even really do that. Like people, like I've, I just saw a comedian who's like, who said like, I, you know, you take your emotions, you bury them deep down and then you die. Um, and like, that's kind of how we process hard things a lot of the times. And that's a bit of an exaggeration, but, but, but the people of God are meant to, are meant to feel, emote, and respond um, to, to things. And sorrow and grief is one of those responses. And it's a big risk. There's a lot of things to grieve in our lives. And so that's, that's the context, right? That's what we're doing here. Um, so there's three things that Moses kind of lays out. Three perspective changing, or not really changing, but three realities he kind of presents in this psalm and then invites us as the people of God to think through and consider, right? So the first one is this. I'm going to read here, starting in verse 1. Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. The first thing that Moses is saying, the first kind of reality, perspective-changing thing that we're being presented with is man's life is fleeting and short. We do not live for a very long time. And he sets this up by saying, like, by showing us, like, God. God's eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Um, he highlights God as creator, being at the beginning of all things. And he highlights God being the people of Israel's dwelling place, right? But Moses, if you remember Moses at the burning bush, when he asked God, who should I say sent me? God says, I am who I am, which is something that people have written just loads of books on, that idea. But before ever anything was made, God was God currently is that same person, and he will be afterwards, right? These images that we see of these galaxies, these stars forming, like however many millions of years and light years and whatever concept of time we kind of wrap our heads around with all this, before any of that existed, God was. The God we know today is that same God. He's not bettered. He's not worsened. He's not aged. He's not grown. He's not decayed. He's the same and when all of these stars and galaxies and all of us are no more, God will be. And so he sets that God up, and then the next words that he says are, you return man to dust. Like he doesn't pull any punches here. He goes straight to the fact that we are of dust. We return to dust when we die. He says, return, O children of man. The word man there can be translated like to children of Adam. He highlights like this, like, you know, Adam brought sin and death into the world. By disobeying God, right? And so that's who we are. We are children of that guy. He introduces the concept of time that to us, I mean, a thousand years is a long time. I'm from America where like 200 years is a long time, um, right? But a thousand years is a, is, a, is a long time. We live 70 or 80 of them, the, the psalmist says. And to God, a thousand years are but a day. 
and our years are swept away like a flood. Have you guys seen, I was, there's floods in Kentucky right now, and they were showing images on the, on the news, and you just see houses just like floating down the street and being washed away with these floods. That's our life. Those are our years. They are like a dream. Do you remember what you dreamed last night? I notoriously can't remember dreams. It frustrates my wife to know. She's like, what, you know, we like, what, I have this dream about whatever. And I never tell her my dreams because I, I, I wake up and I can't remember anything. Um, I, don't, I do dream, but I don't remember it. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. If you take that concept of grass and remember that the people of Israel have been in the wilderness, like have you ever been in a desert and seen grass? Like it, it, it flowers for like a day and is gone. Shriveled up in the sun. And that's, that's the paint, picture he paints of our lives. So it's this sort of sobering reality that, hey, as, as human beings, we're not here very long. And then he introduces this second idea on what is already pretty a sobering, I don't want to say depressing, but it's just like, it's just, you know, it's just not a fun thought to wrestle with. The second idea Moses introduces, he starts in verse 7. We are brought, uh, for we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or, by, or even by reason of strength 80, but their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. The word span there in verse 10 can also be translated to pride. It's a word that can also be called, used as pride. And so what Moses is saying here is like, even the pride of our lives, even the best of it is toil and trouble. It's just, like I said, not a very fun psalm to like think through. Um, the first idea is our life is brief and fleeting. The second idea is that whatever brief, fleeting life we live, we live under the anger and wrath of God. Um, now, he asks a question in verse 11. says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Um, I don't know when the last time you considered those things were, but we're going to do that right now. Um, the question I came up with, and you might be asking yourself, is, okay, this is great. I understand this. It's not great, but I understand it, right, in the context that it's written, um, in terms of the law. But we live, like, on this side of the cross, right? So, so how, do, how do we reconcile this thing that Moses is saying, that we live under the anger and wrath of God? We're brought to an end by your anger. But, like, but I believe in Jesus, right? So certainly not. This isn't, this isn't me. Like, I, I can kind of disregard this part of this doesn't apply to me anymore as a believer in Jesus. Um, and yes, on one hand, yes, there is a reality to our lives and us being on this side of the gospel and us having faith in Jesus where we aren't under the anger and wrath of God anymore, but also no. And let me try to explain. I, wa- I want to, I'm going to say something on the front end before we walk into the gray of this. But if you are a believer in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for you. When, Jesus, when God sees you, he sees Christ. Um, you, aren't going, you no longer have to face the punishment of hell. You will be able to spend eternity, eternity with um, Christ in the presence of God in heaven. Right? I'm saying that explicitly so we don't have any confusion. All right? 
but there's a reality that's something. That, so, so the gospel says this. Let me explain the gospel real quick. So the gospel says that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life, right? If we're children of Adam, though. Adam sinned. We all sin, and sin separates us from God. This is the, we live under the anger and wrath of God bit of it, right? And then Christ died, lived, lived a perfect life, okay? He, he, in his nature and in his action, was sinless. But what punishment we deserve for our rebellion and our sinfulness, Christ took and gave us his righteousness and perfection. That's how, we, that's how we're restored to relationship with God if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, okay? But the distinction, here's the gray bit. The distinction is, while we are not under the judgment and condemnation for our sin anymore, we still suffer the consequence of it. And so as we read this part of it on this side of the cross with faith and trust in Jesus, we need to remember when he says, who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you? God, like, the consequence of sin remains. So let me contextualize this in terms of uh, the book of Exodus. So if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, um, the nation of Israel is in Egypt. Um, they're delivered. The plagues happen. They go through the Red Sea. They, they get to the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, Moses commissions 12 men to go and spy out the land. And when they come back, 10 of those 12 people what they report back is the strength of the nations there, um, the fortified cities, basically how impossible it would be for, for us as this wandering people to conquer this place. But there's two other guys, Caleb and Joshua, who their report is different. They go into, the, into Canaan, and they, instead of reporting back like all the difficulty and obstacles um, and things, they look at it through, through the eyes of faith, and they, they are like, it, it's exactly like God described. It is a land full of milk and honey. Like, it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's everything God said it would be. Let's go. Let's go take it. We've confirmed the fact that what God said is true. Let's go do it, right? Totally different perspectives. And so the nation of Israel has these two reports come back from the same group of people, and instead of believing Joshua and Caleb, they they, they, they have this faithless response, and they're like, we can't do it. And and, and, they, and they decide not to go, right? And so God, because of their faithfulness, faithlessness, sends them out in the wilderness for 40 years. That entire generation of Israelites dies off, except for Caleb and Joshua. And now we're here where they're about to re-enter the promised land. Okay? And so when I talk about the consequence of sin, God was still with his people those 40 years through his presence in the tabernacle, in their wanderings in the wilderness, God was still with them. They, it's not like they were no longer the people of God, but the consequence of their sin remained. Does that make sense? So there's two th- ways to look at this. Number one, we need to look at it collectively as a community, as a people, as sinners, as people who sin, as, as people who are guilty of sin, right? And so we need to think about the fact that there are consequences for our sins that we do. And so we can think about it culturally, right? Like what are the sinful consequences of our materialism? Right? What are the sinful consequences of, um, 
our greed or these cultural sins that we have, right? Let's, let's contextualize Northern Ireland. What are the consequences of sectarianism? Whether or not we are like flying flags and actively participating in it as a people, what consequences do we suffer from these things? And then we also need to look at it from the perspective of someone like Joshua Caleb, who is, who is a righteous person, full of faith, but a part of a sinful people. So what consequences do we in our own lives experience as we try to walk in faithful obedience to God? The nation of Israel, who decided, like the 40 years ago version of the nation of Israel, including Joshua and Caleb, all suffered the consequence of their sin. Only Joshua and Caleb, because of their faithfulness, were sort of spared the judgment, so to speak. They were still able to, to see the promised land. The rest of the nation of Israel were under the consequence and the judgment. Does that make sense, the distinction? Um, and I'm hoping the kind of contextualization is helping us here a little bit, right? Like, who considers these things? Like, let's, like, let's consider this. I want to give a brief example, okay? Um, pornography. Pornography is a thing that has probably touched almost every life in here in one way or another, whether that's part of your experience of sin and grace in your own life, whether someone you know has, like, you know, is or has, like, I don't say taken part, whatever, like, that's been part of their sin struggle, right? Like, it touches almost every life, just statistically. Like, that's just what the numbers say. But it's super taboo, right? And we view it as a very consequenceless sin, which is why we often struggle with, um, for lack of a better way, crucifying it right, of actually taking it out of our lives. Because we do it, we feel guilty, and we're like, oh man, that was, that was really bad, and I know I shouldn't be doing this, and so we, we don't do it for a little while, but we didn't experience any consequences. No one found out, there was no shame involved, no relationships were broken, I didn't lose my job or my money, or like there was, because there was no consequence, we were like, oh, okay, well then you know, all of a sudden we find ourselves a few months later back in the same situation. And the the reality is, and the, the, the danger of that sin in particular, the, re, the reality is there are consequences of that sin. Because what pornography does to us is it rewires our brains to view every relationship from the perspective of a consumer. But not a consumer who has to pay for something. There's no, there's no exchange, right? I mean, that's a bad enough version of a relationship. But, but instead of even that version of like, I got to do this just to get the thing that I want, it's just, I deserve the thing that I want, and you need to give it to me. And we don't realize that that's starting to happen. But like, if you, for any amount of time, especially the longer you've, like, that pornography's been a part of your life, your brain be, has become wired to think like that. And we need God to change that, right? Like, God, there's healing there, certainly. But that's a consequence of it. We don't realize it's happening. The second one is, like, there's an anger. Like, you're, because you, because you think that you deserve th these things, because you've, you think other relationships should look like this, right? That, that, Pornography is obviously the fulfillment of lust. We're talking about like even the idea of gluttony. Like I want, I need, I deserve. This instant gratification to a gluttonous idea. Like I want something and it needs to happen for me right now the way I want it. We then become frustrated and short-tempered with people. I know when I, know when I struggled with this, I, I, knew, I knew every time that it, was, that, that it was happening that like I could see my relationships me just being like, so, I get frustrated so fast with people because I want something this way right now, and it wasn't happening the way it happened on a computer screen. 
a few days ago or whatever. Does that make sense? And then finally, like, and this is like, like corporate, like we're unaware as, as we do that, that we're participating in probably the number one fueler of the sex trade internationally. And we don't, cons- like, we're not thinking about these things. But, but the reality and the consequence of our sinfulness is all of that. And we bear that consequence here on this earth. I think uh, I'm camping out on sin a lot. This feels like one of those, like, hey, we're all sinful people. Let's feel bad about ourselves type of thing. Don't worry. The good news of the gospel part's coming. Um, but in verse 11, again, Moses says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And the reality is, we don't. In the same way that we live life pretty unaware of what's happening in these other galaxies, however, whatever, light years away, right? We live, we don't, we don't consider the effect of our sinfulness on our lives. And even as we try to live righteously, we don't consider the fact that, like, man, it's just going to be tough. We live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. Like, to try to do business honestly in a way that glorifies God costs us. Integrity has a cost. Fidelity has a cost. Charity has a cost. To treat people and to li- I mean, look at the life of Jesus. To live righteously has a cost. And so, that's, we need to consider these things. And I think the reason why I'm kind of belaboring the point a little bit, belaboring is a bad word, sorry. The reason why we're staying here a little bit is because I think it's important for us to remember this. I, uh, I've had a lot, we've, I, have, I do work on campus. We talk to, to students um, from Protestant Catholic backgrounds, spiritual conversations, talk about the gospel, all that kind of stuff. And one thing I've kind of realized specifically in this place that we live, our wee country, um, is that, is, and this isn't, I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush, but we'll you know, sort of generalize here a little bit. I think people from a Catholic background do consider sinfulness way more than people from a Protestant background do. Um, the, the idea of confession and having to go confess to a priest and all these kind of things, and even kind of the, what's communicated about you, people being sinful, right? It's just, it's, it's on your mind from a Catholic background more in general. And um, we... People from a Protestant background, theologically, are uh, more grace, mercy, love of Jesus. That's, that's what's communicated from behind this on Sunday mornings, right? Um, the consequence, I think the thing that happens with it is, is what, can, what, what can happen is, is people from, a, from like, a, a, like a Roman Catholic theological background can, can have a graceless consideration of sin. It's a, it's a consideration of sin that has no Jesus involved. There's no mercy, there's no grace. I'm a bad person, I'm always gonna be a bad person, like, mindset to it. Like, it, it can develop, right? The problem and the danger that we have as people with a Protestant theological background is we can have a sinless consideration of grace. And if we aren't sinful people, what need is there of Jesus? And I grew up in the church, it's part of my own story. I for sure grew up and still, still struggle with today of 
having a sinless consideration of, of the cross. Like, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy, I think I have the verse here um, on a slide, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul had a sinful consideration of grace. Paul understood his sinfulness, and he understood the grace of God, and he understood them very, like, robustly, right? Very fully. And I think if we were to do what Moses is suggesting here in verse 11 of considering the power uh, of God's anger and wrath according to fear of you, if we were to consider what he says in verse 8, that God sets our iniquities and our secret sins before him in the light of his presence, we would probably be like Paul and say that we're the foremost sinners. Like if you, if you, as, as you delve the depths of the sinfulness of your own heart, I think we would, I mean, I don't know that this would actually happen, but I think I would probably argue with you that I'm a worse person than you are because I know me and I only know so much about you. But knowing what I know of me, I, I think I'm a, you know, I, I'm not, we'd like fight about it, maybe, I don't know. But right, like, but look at the way Paul writes about the gospel. Like read any of his letters. It's just, he, he loves it. He loves Jesus in a way that I want to in my own life. But it's because of his awareness of his sin, the confession of his sin, the repentance of his sin in his own life, and sin that everyone knew. Like everyone knew Paul persecuted the church. Everywhere he, read Acts. The first thing everyone says about him when they meet him in, early on in his ministry was like, wasn't this the guy? Weren't you, weren't you doing this? Weren't you killing people about this stuff? Like that was his reputation. And now he's on this, he's now like on the other side of it. He's totally switched teams. And so the reason why I want us to stay here and the reason Moses is doing this right, right here is because we ought not to forget about our own sin and how God feels about it and what God does about it just because, just because well, there's Jesus and we're all okay now. Um, so this, this psalm, I'm going to get into the third point here because it's a three-point sermon because that's what, that's what people do in church. Um, but, but this psalm is called A Prayer of Moses. And for, the, for my first time studying it, like the first wee while, I was focusing on the 12 through 17, which we're getting to now. And I was like, oh, that's the part, that part's the prayer. Um, but it's not. The whole thing's a prayer. 12 through 17 is just the part where Moses asks God for stuff. But 1 through 11 is a prayer of confession. Again, it's a lament. Moses isn't being like, look how terrible things are, but this is a, he's like grieving to God about like, oh, like this is so bad. Our life is short. How sad is that? Moses, has, Moses, is on, Moses knows now that they're at the, at the promised land that he's going to die soon because God told him, you're not going in. So he knows he's at the end of his life. He's just watched an entire generation of his people die off because of sin. And as they're on the doorstep of experiencing the goodness and the, prom the promised goodness of God, He's, he's saying, let's remember this. Like, we just watched all this happen. Who, like, who considers these things? We don't, we didn't, and we are in danger of not doing it again. And then he goes into verse 12 here. 
He highlights that our life is brief. He highlights that we live under the anger and wrath of God. And then in 12 through 17, he also recognizes that we live under the grace of God, right? And so both are true. Look how Moses talks about it. He says in 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The first thing he asks for is that all this, all these reality, like realities that he's just stated, he's like, help us remember all of these things so that we may live wisely. What would it look like? What would, your, what would your walk with God look like if you remembered that your life is short and that you're a sinful person and that because of that sin, Jesus had to die on a cross, like every day? And not like, not like the way we conceptualize sin of like, it's just like, like we kind of like put in a junk drawer, like, oh, it's, in the, it's like the closet full of stuff when, you, when you're tidying up for guests to come over. It's like, I threw it all in there and it's, you just think about it kind of blankly. But like, but, but really understanding the, the consequence of it. What would our walk with God look like if every day we lived in light of that? So Moses, the first thing Moses asked God for is, we're about to, is for the people of God, as they're about to experience the promised goodness of God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help us to remember all of this stuff. The second thing he asked for, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. There's a really interesting, if you look at the theme or like the idea of the presence of God in this psalm, it's really interesting. The first time Moses mentions it is in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The people of Israel have been a homeless people for hundreds of years. They've been, I think it's 400 years in Egypt, not their home. That time they were slaves, definitely not their home. They then are delivered from Egypt but are wandering in the wilderness, not their home. They are moving from place to place, which, so you're even more aware. They're like refugees. Like they're even more aware of their homelessness. Um, they come to the promised land, which is meant to be their home. They don't have any faith, so God sends them away from this place that was supposed to be their home, back into the wilderness for 40 more years. And now they're here at a place that will be promised to be their home. And that entire time, God has been their home. So the first words out of Moses' mouth is, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. And that's a really nice idea for us. But I want us to remember that we're, we have a home. Like, I, I have a home. I've never not had a, I've always had a sense of home. I am not a person, nor am I of a people that have had a sense of homelessness, that have been wandering around for generations. And the only concept of home that they had was God. Like, imagine that, right? And so the first idea of the presence of God for the people of God is, is home, is refuge, is, is, is a dwelling place. And the next time Moses talks about the presence of God is in verse 8, where he says, you have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in light of your presence. So as comforting and nice as the first idea, as the first idea of the presence of God is in this psalm, the second one is equally uncomfortable. That while the presence of God is a place of safety and refuge and home, the presence of God is also a place of sin exposure. And again, as we all know, as we've been talking about, as I've been repeating for the last too long probably, we have lots of sins we don't want people to know about, and we especially don't want God to know about them because we know how God feels about sin and what he does about it. Moses says so, so much in the Psalms. So there's this, uh, I have a friend who has a tattoo with a lion that says, of course he isn't safe, but he's good, right? It's this idea that like, there's this there's like refuge and comfort and there's danger. 
all at the same time the presence of God. And then thirdly, in verse 13, the presence of God comes up here where Moses says, return, O Lord, how long? In light of all that, Moses wants the presence of God back with his people. Have pity on your servants. Here's what Moses knows. While he knows that the presence of God is a place where his sin is exposed, he also knows that the presence of God is where mercy and grace and joy and new life and all these things happen. Both happen together. And so if we want to experience, so we, like, we need the presence of God to experience that. And so my question that I wonder about for me and for us is like, how much do we desire the presence of God amongst us? Because we live in this weird tension where we want, the, we want the presence of God in terms of, like, hey, God, life's really tough, and I, I want you near me. Help me feel better about my circumstances. I've got to make rent, whatever else. But we don't want God so near when it comes to, like, our sin. But you, you can't have one without the other. Like, if God gets close, both happen. Or, he does, or you keep them at arm's length. So how much do we desire the presence of God in our lives? Um, in Exodus 33, verse 14, this is, about, this is when they're about to set, uh, set out from um, Sinai, I think, with, after the Ten Commandments. And this is a prayer that Moses, this conversation Moses has with God. God says in verse 14, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That Again, we'll put that over here with nice verses that we like. Okay? Look at Moses' response in 15. And he, Moses, said to him, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we have, uh, so, sorry, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And it's this really weird thing. I've, I've kind of wrestled this interaction for a while, but it's this really weird thing because God promises to go with him, and Moses is like, okay, but I just want to clarify, you are going to go with us, though, even though you just said it. I just want to make sure that you're going to go with us, because if you're not going to go with us, don't call us up out of here. Moses desired the presence of God pretty greatly. Like, there's, this, there's a moment of transition in, his, in his, his life and the life of the nation of Israel, and he's like, just, I just want to make sure that you're with us on this, that and that we're with you, that this is going to happen together. And when I consider my life, I don't often consider God's presence with me as I go do the next thing, whether that's um, some different, like, initiative at work, or whether that's something we're doing with the kids, or even, like, a family holiday. Like, how do I consider the presence of God in these next things that I'm doing? Moses recognized that it was necessary to experience the grace of God in his life for God's presence to be there. So we have this heart of wisdom. We have um, God's presence. 14 to 15, 14 and 15 says this, uh, say this, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for many, uh, as many years as we have seen evil. While Moses also recognizes that the presence of God, because it comes right after this, is a place of satisfaction and goodness. And so he recognizes that there's consequence for his sin, for, for any good to be experienced in his own life. Um, God makes it happen. And I think that's a thing that, again, if we live in light of these realities, what we will see is that every good thing we experience in our life is from God. Everything from like a common grace of a sunny day 
to, like, obviously, the work of Jesus on the cross and our salvation and relationship that we can get us with God. All good things. Every good thing we experience is from God. And then finally, in 1617, he says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Upon us, yes, establish the work of our hands. Again, they're about to enter the promised land. They're about to go basically on a military campaign to conquer these nations and take this place over. And Moses' prayer finally is like, as we're about to live out what you've called us to, our calling, let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to your children. So he's asking, like, God, please do stuff, right? Be active as we go to live out our calling. And also, let the favor of the Lord be upon us, establish the work of our hands. And the parts that, and basically what he's saying is, in the parts that we're going to play in all this, we also need you to help us even be successful in our role in, in your calling in our lives. So, what does that mean for us? Right, I've kind of I've slowly gone through this whole psalm. What does all of this mean for like us as we look at our own lives and live it? Because at this moment, this is this psalm was written, like I said, in this kind of moment of transition from like from wilderness and consequence of sin into promised land, into an experience of God's promised goodness. But what does that mean for us, like today, this week? Well, firstly, I think we need to remember that our days are fleeting. I was reflecting on this this week. I said 70 years here. I'm 35 in January. I'm in, this, I'm in this weird season of my life that I'm entering where I might have more years behind me than ahead of me. Hopefully not, but maybe. What do I do with that? How does that affect how I live? Not just like in general, like as a parent and whatever else, but also just like as a Christian. When I think about what God has called me to in terms of living for him and obedience to him, how do I consider my time? And one of the things that I considered this week is that I, and I think Moses does too here, I've wasted a lot of my life in disobedience. And consequently, not experiencing the goodness of God. If you, like a whole generation of people died. Like Moses, again, like I said, I've said this a few times, but Moses has just watched a whole generation of Israelites pass away because of sin, because of disobedience. And how much of the goodness of God in my own life have I missed out on because of sin? And God's ready to give it to us, as we know this from Scripture. But like, we don't fully experience the love and presence of God in our lives when we're actively sinning in disobedience. The prodigal son, though still a son, doesn't experience the goodness of the father when he's prodigal. So at this point in my life, I consider those things, right? Our fleeting days. Number two, we also should consider the consequence of sin in our lives and the world we live in. It's around us every day. Climate change is a big discussion, and I don't know how you feel about that politically or whatever else, but there's a reality that we as the people of God should consider the consequence of our stewarding of God's gift of the earth and resources and whatever else to us. What are the consequences of that? And finally, we must remember Moses' request at the end, specifically remembering that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prayer. Here's the cool part, right? So when we think about 
a heart of wisdom, and specifically when we think about returning, O Lord, how long, how pity your, have pity on your servants, like the presence of God with us, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. It's July. It's not Christmas. I love Christmas. Um, I thought about Christmas today when I got up and it was like colder than it's supposed to be in July, and I was like, oh man, it's almost autumn, which means it's almost Thanksgiving, which means it's almost Christmas. Um, but like, the thing I love about Christmas, and one of the reasons why it's my favorite, specifically of like the religious calendar, like favorite holiday, is because it, it's about God coming, like Emmanuel, God being with us. And that's what, Je- like Jesus is God's presence with us. Secondly, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we will rejoice all of our days, making us glad in our affliction. Like Jesus, we, did, I went, through, we went through it earlier, but Jesus having lived the human experience, Jesus living perfectly, and then dying the death that we deserve, and then us give, getting his righteousness, us being forgiven of our sins, like that, what greater goodness of God can we experience in our lives? He's the presence of God with us. And, and then when Jesus ascended, he gave us the Holy Spirit, who's God's ever-present presence with us. And when we look at the end where it talks about like the work of God being shown among your servants, God's glorious power to your children, how is that not seen in, in Jesus? Like, the work of God, like, think about, I had the pleasure of meeting a woman who became a Christian very recently and got baptized a week ago. And when she talks about what God's done in her life, when I'm preparing the sermon and talking about the work, show, like, being shown to your servants and God's glorious power to their children, like, I, I can't, Nothing changes someone's life like the gospel. Like nothing does. And so the Jesus is the fulfillment of all this. And so my encouragement for us this morning um, is that we would remember these things. We would number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, that we would consider these truths. We're talking about Jesus. Communion is a picture of all this, right? us as insignificant people with our own fleeting lives under the anger and wrath of God, we're shown grace from God in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. And we at Village, we do, we do communion every, every Sunday because we don't want to forget. We want to number our days by remembering every week the work of Christ on the cross. That our, our debt was paid, that our sins are forgiven, that we get to experience new life in him as resurrected people in the same way that he was resurrected. The same power that resurrected God's son, same spirit that lives in him, lives in us now. And it's, we need to remember that every week. And so as we have this meal and consider this psalm and grieve our sin and grieve the brevity of our lives and cry out to God for his presence and ask him to satisfy us, I want us to have communion and remember the way Jesus asked us to, to remember that it, it, it's all, it all hinges on him. All of that hangs on Christ because of Christ. And so we have bread and we have wine. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal, Passover, which Moses was there for the first one, where God forgave the sins of his people, where, God, where Moses and the people of Israel saw God's faithfulness and all of this, Right? And in that moment, Jesus took that picture of this thing that God had done hundreds of years ago and then put himself there 
instead of a sacrificial lamb, it was him that was going to be what uh, helped people be saved. And so we have the bread, which represents God's body. We have the wine, which represents his blood, shed for us and broken for us. And so I want to invite us to come up and take it. I think James can come up and he's going to play music while we do. And as you, we, we ask if you're a believer to take this and remember Christ. Remember his sacrifice on the cross. Remember what good we've been given because of him. And if you're not a believer, we ask that you don't take it and instead receive Jesus this morning. If you don't know what that looks like, if this has been a really confusing sermon for you because of all this, I might be, I don't know. Um, talk to someone, talk to myself or whoever else. We'd love to kind of ask, answer questions, have more of a discussion about that. But, but, but let's remember Jesus in the work of the cross. Let's consider all of these things and worship him because of God's goodness and faithfulness to us. Father God, thank you for your word and thank you for the cross. And help us to remember this morning and every day what Jesus accomplished on the cross. God, we're sinful people. We mess up every day. This morning, later this afternoon, our sinfulness will just be ever before us. God, I pray for your presence to be here with us, that we might confess our sin to you and there find mercy and grace. We might find joy. We might experience your steadfast love through Christ. Thank you for your goodness to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's start.